Well, howdy there, friends and neighbors. This here is Zeke talking to you once again. Old Bob's busy working on a new project. He'll be back at the end of this here program to tell you all about it. Right now, I'd like to welcome you to episode four of the fourth season of the Local Folks Podcast. And first and foremost, yeah, I'd just like to say how happy I am that this here election's over. You know, presidential campaigns in the good old USA are endless, seems to me. And after a little bit of hunting, I found out that old Don and several of the Democratic candidates filed a run for president in late 2017. And most of the Democratic candidates was all signed up by early April 2019. And the first Democratic debate was in late June 2019. Hmm. Now, I don't claim to be no mathematical genius. But even an old mountaineer like me has enough arithmetic to figure out that our presidential election has been going on for nigh on two years. Two years! And not only that, a little more digging tells me that the total price tag for the election was $14 billion, that's billion with a B, dollars. Now compare that to our neighbors to the north. The last national election in Canada lasted less than 50 days and cost a total of $500 million or less than 1% of what we spend choosing the government. And just what do we get for all that time and money? Well, I can say with certainty that I get a sore head just thinking on all the endless attack ads just about wherever you look. The strange rituals on TV that are about as close to a real debate as my little cabin is to a mansion. And the possibility of all kinds of pay-to-play corruption and unfair influence by big donors to candidates' campaigns. Now, I have no idea about how to change things up so my head don't get sore every time we have a national election. But I hazard that we can, if we put our heads together, figure it out. You know, when Bob was poking his nose into the business of gleaners, hard-working folks who collect and distribute millions of pounds of food and hundreds of cords of firewood to over 7,000 low-income people in Lynn and Benton counties, uh, he was doing this for season two of this here podcast, he listened in on several coordinator meetings. Each group in the region has a coordinator. And there are 14 active groups in all. And from what Bob tells me, them folks was mighty good and effective at solving serious problems. It was like they agreed to leave religion, politics, ethnicity, etc. at the door so they could, in the words of Jim Templeton, one of the coordinators, get to working on what's important, feeding other people, and heating their homes. Seems to me if them hard-working, low-income folks can work together to solve tough problems, the rest of us ought to be able to figure it out. Howsomever, if I was boss of elections, not saying I want to be, just speculating, the whole shooting match, primaries and general election, would last a total of two months. And each party would get a set amount of money. And the way I'm feeling right now after this last election, that'd be about $100 to make their case to the American people. Debates between the candidates would be just that, real debates, not some showcase nonsense with a milk toast moderator. 
And any violation of the rules, like constantly interrupting when it's the other candidate's turn to talk, gets somebody in a whole passel of trouble. Questions for debaters would come from a panel of voters chosen to represent the diversity of the electorate. And in real time, the panel would be able to grade each candidate's answers for consistency, truthfulness, and actually answering the doggone question that was asked. And then them scores would be published at the end of the debate. I figure it's time we hold them candidates' little feet to the fire of truth. Speaking of truth, I read in the news recently that an ER nurse in South Dakota said she's had patients who are dying of COVID-19 but still don't believe the virus is real. Now, just think on that for a moment. Somehow this here pandemic has gotten so politicized that a whole bunch of folks have decided it's all a hoax. That them there doctors and scientists who are saying loud and clear COVID's a real serious disease is all a bunch of lying rats who are working with billionaire moguls like Bill Gates to gain more wealth and power. Or the coronavirus is no worse than the flu or some such foolishness. And a willingness to believe such hoorah seems to be highly correlated with who someone voted for in the last election. Well, sir, I side with science. Viruses ain't political know-how. The only thing they know how to do is replicate, period. And they are so simple they can't even replicate on their own like living cells. Nope. They need a living cell to do all that work for them. They just inject a little old snippet of DNA or RNA into the cell that reprograms it into a veritable virus factory that makes a whole herd of new viruses and then ruptures to release them and start the infection process all over again. Now, if you want to know how to protect yourself and your loved ones from a virus, I don't think I'd go listen to no preacher, politician, or pundit. No siree. If I was you, I'd listen to someone like Dr. Fauci who's been studying viruses and their transmission all his professional life. He and his colleagues have a pretty simple message for all of us. Wear a mask, wash your hands, avoid large gatherings of people, and practice social distancing. Don't seem all that difficult to me. But some folks think it is. They talk about how they ain't sheep or don't cotton to people telling them what to do or some other palaver about how restrictions and gatherings or mandates to wear masks or fringing on their rights and freedoms to act as they please. Well, my response to that is exercising your freedom to do what you want doesn't give you the right to threaten my health and welfare. You know, I kind of liken it to play Russian roulette. Now, for those of you who might not be familiar with this particular activity, let me explain. First, you need to get your hands on an unloaded revolver. Clip-fed pistol won't work. In fact, it'll kill you right off. Next, open the cylinder and put a round in one of the empty chambers. Close the revolver up and spin the chamber. Then cock your piece, put the muzzle against your temporal, and pull the trigger. Depending on the nature of your revolver, you're likely to have a 1 in 5 or a 1 in 6 chance of dying. Now, if you want to play this game in my presence, I guess you have that right. And while I would rather not witness your demise, as long as I'm not standing downrange of your noggin, whether you pull the trigger or not is up to you. Howsomever, 
If you put a round in the chamber, spin the cylinder, cock a piece, and point it at me and pull the trigger, then, my friend, we have a very big problem. Seems to me not wearing a mask, not practicing social distancing, and hanging out with large groups of people in an enclosed space is just the same thing as playing Russian roulette with my life. Following the recommendations of folks like Dr. Fauci protects other people as well as me. And if we want to beat this here virus, then we all have to pull together, no matter what our political persuasion. Kind of seems just like a neighborly thing to do, don't it? Finally, I got a hankering to return to a subject Bob talked about in the first episode of season four, racism and white privilege. You know, I just finished reading River of Dark Dreams, Slavery and Empire in the Cotton Kingdom by Walter Johnson. It's a right good history of the Cotton Kingdom of the Mississippi Valley, and it really got my old pea brain to thinking and pondering. First off, all them big old plantations was built on land stolen from the original folks whose ancestors had lived there for centuries. Under the leadership of President Andrew Jackson, these original residents of the land was forcibly evicted from their homes, kicked out of the valley, and put on reservations on substandard ground in what became known as Indian Territory. And the rich forested land of the valley was turned over to white folks who transformed the land into cotton-growing plantations by the unpaid hard labor of their black slaves. Second, all that unpaid labor produced a big old pile of money year after year. Why, by 1860, cotton exports was about 60% of the total exports for the United States and was worth billions of today's dollars. I can't give you an exact figure because different sources have different values, but I can say it was a big old pile of money. And what did those black slaves get for all their labor? Well, they got poor food, poor housing, coarse hand-me-down clothes, and regular corporal punishment of the vilest kind thrown into the bargain. All that money those slaves made went to white planters, the merchants who sold them planters the goods they needed, the traders who sold the raw cotton to mills in the United States and England, the owners and workers in them mills, the distributors and merchants who sold the cloth those mills produced, and the bankers who loaned the money needed to keep the whole shebang up and running. When you think on it, all that wealth those slaves produced ended up percolating through the national economy and enriching all Americans, provided they was white. And what did the descendants of those slaves get? Well, they got discrimination, Jim Crow, lynching, poor schools, substandard housing, low wages, and the Ku Klux Klan. Well, I just read a 2016 study by the Brookings Institute that found that the net worth of a typical white family in 2016 was about $171,000, which turns out to be about 10 times the $17,000 net worth of a typical African-American family. I think it's fair to say that white people benefited a great goober and god from slavery, while the descendants of those slaves have not. Kind of makes me want to get into a time machine if such thing existed, 
and go back in history, find some of my ancestors, grab them by the scruff of the neck and say, just what the heck are you thinking? It's high time you change your ways and undo the injustice you have inflicted on these black folks by paying them for all the wealth they created for free. Now, I have no idea how to set a program of reparations up, but I do believe that if we all get down to business with goodwill and a commitment to do the right thing, we can figure out a just and lasting solution. Maybe we might want to keep in mind the three big ideas of restorative justice from the Center for Justice and Reconciliation to right the terrible wrong of this crime. One, repair. Crime causes harm, and justice requires repairing that harm. Two, encounter. The best way to determine how to do that is to have the parties decide together. And three, transformation. This can cause a fundamental change in people, relationships, and communities. And I do believe that if we make this right, it will help us to create a more perfect union. And one more thing. I'd just like to say thank you to all the unsung heroes of our recent election. Local folks who work very hard to make sure our elections is free and fair. Poll workers and elections officials. You know, before election day, I heard all kinds of dire predictions about chaos, fraud, possible violence in polling places, hackers changing the results, and on and on. And I'm glad to say that as far as I can tell, and it appears that a whole herd of judges agree with me, them folks did a bang-up job of keeping things on the up and up, and I salute them for it. I also want to give a big old pat on the back to us Americans. In the face of a pandemic, a record number of people turned out to vote, even if they had to stand in line for hours. Congratulations, Americans. This old mountaineer is right proud of you. Well, folks, that's about all she wrote for old Zeke. Takes a lot to get me riled up enough to leave my little cabin in the mountains. And this here election sure did a good job of that. I just got about everything off my chest I wanted to. So I figure it's high time I turn this here podcast back over to old Bob. Ain't saying I won't be back if the spirit moves me. But right now, my front porch and rocking chair are calling me home. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Well, Zeke had quite a bit to say, didn't he? I always appreciate his perspective on things, and I imagine he'll definitely be back sometime in the future. While Zeke has been the guest host of Local Folks, I've been working on a series of programs that will focus on caregiving. Why caregiving? Well, first of all, there are a lot of folks who are likely taking care of loved ones during this pandemic. And I'm also pretty sure that as folks like me aging baby boomers, get older, taking care of an aging loved one is likely to become a lot more common. And second, I really would have benefited from hearing the wisdom of folks who have taken care of someone while I was caring for my mom in the last year of her life. So I hope this upcoming series of podcasts on caregiving will be helpful to folks when it comes time for them to take care of an ailing loved one. My dad died in San Francisco in 1993. 
and because Mom was suffering the effects of Parkinson's disease, she moved in with me here in Oregon. I was living alone at the time due to a recent divorce, and it was quite a challenge to manage my mom's slow deterioration due to her disease while working full-time. I was ignorant of the support services that were available in Corvallis for folks in my situation, and pretty much managed on my own. I hired a young woman to stay with my mom while I was at work, and my daily routine during the work week was something like this. Wake up early in the morning, check on mom, leave a note with any necessary information for the caregiver, and head to work after she arrived. After work and on weekends, I took care of mom. For most of the year, this was pretty much my routine. I did try to get away uh, for a little time to socialize with friends, etc., but getting someone to take care of mom while I was gone was always a challenge. So often, I just didn't go anywhere. As time passed, mom continued to get worse, and finally there came a day, about two months before her death, that I just couldn't continue to give her the care she needed, and she had to go into a care facility here in Corvallis. A couple of days later, a friend called me and asked if I wanted to go to a local club to hear a jazz combo we both enjoyed. My initial response was stress, as my mind raced through all the things I would need to do in the next hour or so to be able to go. Get someone to stay with mom while I was gone. Make dinner and keep it warm so mom could have her evening meal. Make sure her meds were counted out and ready so she could take them before she went to bed, etc. And then I realized I didn't have to do any of that. I could just go and not worry about anything. And it was at that precise moment when I felt like an enormous weight had been lifted from my shoulders. And then I was aware of just how much stress I had been under for almost a year. Like most folks, I wasn't really aware of how stressed I was. I just kept doing what was necessary and didn't give my personal welfare or needs much thought. It wasn't until after the stress was removed that I was able to see just how challenging and difficult the whole experience was. I don't want to give the impression that I regret taking care of mom. I'm really glad I had that opportunity. After all, she took very good care of me, and returning the favor for a year was the least I could do. I just think that it would have been really helpful if I could have heard some wisdom from folks who have provided care on how best to proceed. To that end, I'm partnering with Lumina Hospice and Palliative Care here in Corvallis, to create a series of podcasts on caregiving. And I hope you will join us for episode one, which will air on January 1st. Well, that wraps up this edition of Local Folks Podcast. Take care, have a wonderful holiday season, and um, congratulations on an election well done. Portland.